Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Now, every week, we bring you a bunch of stories just bursting with sound from all over the D.C. region. And this time around, we're taking that sound to a whole new level as we dive into an hour of music. Today, we're exploring the rich and eclectic local music scene with a show we're calling Capital Notes. And when it comes to local music, WAMU is always on the cutting edge thanks to its website, Bandwidth. And this week, we've invited Bandwidth's editor, Ali Schweitzer, to help us move things along. Ali, welcome to Metro Connection. Hi, Rebecca. Glad to be here. So one of the things I personally love about Bandwidth is how your ears are so open to what's next in D.C. music. But as we'll talk about today, D.C.'s musical history is pretty amazing. That's right. And this history has a lot to do with what we're hearing now. We'll actually start today's show by looking back at some of that history. One particular moment, actually, a concert that 30 years ago next month changed one man's life forever. I'm Mark Anderson. I am a co-founder of the punk activist group Positive Force DC and co-director of We Are Family. The memory that I would like to share is of the first time I saw the band Rights of Spring on June 14, 1985 at the Chevy Chase Community Center. Through a friend, Chris Bald, I had heard that there was something called Revolution Summer that was planned for that summer, and that this band, Rights of Spring, who Chris thought was just extraordinary. Um, you know, when Chris spoke about the band, I could tell that this was a band that meant far more than entertainment. So I remember thinking, huh, I really need to get to this show. I didn't know the band's songs. I didn't know any of the people in the band. But what immediately gripped me was the way they approached their performance and their music. Because you could tell that it meant everything to them. They were just throwing themselves into the song. And then they launch into the song End on End. I mean, it's their, it's their last song. And so you've gotten this, you know, the sense of this band that is you know, playing every song like it's the last song, which is like, you, know, you just go over the top, right? Now, you can imagine how it is if you've been playing every song like it's the last song, and then you get to the last song, and it's a song like End on End because it is really an extraordinary song, um, and it's overwhelming, and, and it's beautiful. But then the song is done. So I remember starting, like, kind of start turning around and starting to walk out. You know, because the show's done. And then something happened that kind of sent a chill down my spine. Out of nowhere, the crowd starts to pick up a piece of that end on end song. And I, I, you know, later on I researched it and I know that this had never happened before. There's just a little part in the song which has a little... And somehow, some way, some set of people in the audience pick that up and start to sing it. And next thing you know, like everybody is singing it. And I just remember, like, kind of stumbling through the crowd, like, saying, What is happening? This just doesn't happen. 
and the band didn't know what to do. And finally, the drummer comes back on, starts picking up the beat of what? Of the audience. And then the bass player's back on, and then the guitar player's back on, and then the second guitar player and singer, Guy, is back on. And they take the song back into, um, like, full roar, runaway train mode with the audience um, singing along. For me, that, that, that moment doesn't hold me prisoner. It doesn't make me say, oh, my God, my life was so great that night when I saw Right to Spring for the first time. It makes me want to find that kind of moment of, of truth and communion and immense possibility every day. That was Mark Anderson, who's the co-founder of the punk activist group Positive Force DC, sharing one of his favorite DC musical memories. His story was produced by Metro Connection's Tara Boyle, who, by the way, also talked with WAMU's Katie Daly about the region's bluegrass scene in the 1970s, and with DC resident Craig Nelson about one magical musical night in Blagden Alley. You can hear both those stories on our website, metroconnection.org. We're going to turn now from the musical past to the musical present and explore where music fits into the landscape of our increasingly prosperous city. Now, Ali Schweitzer, you've interviewed all sorts of musicians about what it's like to live and work in D.C. today. What are you hearing from them? You know, I'm hearing from a lot of musicians that they really want to live here. They really want to make music here, but they just can't afford to do it. And that's a common theme across really any art, but particularly music, it seems. Well, joining us now with some more perspective on this very issue and the role of musicians as a potential political force is Chris Naum with Listen Local First. That's the organization behind such big events as the D.C. Funk Parade and the Kingman Island Bluegrass and Folk Fest. Listen Local First is also working with city leaders to rally more support for local music. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. So you work with musicians in so many different genres, and it seems in some ways this is a really good time to be making music. I mean, we see new venues popping up all over the region. We see new festivals popping up. But at the same time, you have to admit, D.C. is an increasingly expensive place to live. So how do you see those two trends affecting local musicians? Well, let me take a step step back on that. The focus of Listen Local First is really to help create alternate avenues for local music exploration. So the reason why I got involved with helping out local musicians and trying to create these alternate avenues and let more people know about what's happening in the music scene is because we need to think about the local music community and individual musicians being businesses. And just like everyone is all about eat local, buy local, shop local, you know, if we really care about our local music community we can help we can help grow it and bring it to a sustainable level because you're right right now it's not a sustainable level and and yes and musicians are finding all sorts of ways to support themselves outside of just making their music 
I, I would say the big issue right now is uh, obviously is affordability of housing. But other than that, there is like grant opportunities. We need restructuring in that in that way. We need other government grants to support creative endeavors. You know, we need practice space. Musicians need practice space because that's the way they can hone their craft. You've created a task force to address policy in local music. What sort of partnership or support are you hoping to get from the city when it comes to local music? So uh, when we created the task force at the end of last year, we had discussions with the Gray administration and the sort of the uh, task force that the mayor had put in place to sort of uh, figure out whether they're going to go on with the creative economy uh, initiatives that Mayor Gray's administration had put put in place. And so we, we held some meetings. We brought together managers, artists, bloggers, writers, people involved in the music scene to sort of talk about what the broader issues are um, in the music community. There are a number of issues from from busking to grants to affordable housing that the music community specifically needs to address and needs to come together to come up with solutions for. There are lots of organizations that promote the arts, but there's not that many task forces and organizations focusing on helping our music community. And our music community has such a rich history. So we haven't actually met with the current administration yet because there's uh, they're in the process of figuring out how they're going to move forward with the Creative Economy Initiative. But that we have been talking to the Washington Economic Partnership, and we are going to convene um, in the next month to sort of establish our goals and our mission statements to go forward and actually present in front of the new administration to do that. Well, in the meantime, uh, something our listeners might not know, Chris, you are an attorney, and I know you've worked with musicians on issues like licensing and copywriting their music. Mm -hmm. And you're also involved in an initiative called Fair Trade Music. So in the context of local music, what does fair trade mean? Fair Trade Music is an initiative that has started, it actually started on the West Coast, and the idea was to set in place uh, a series of best practices in terms of live music and performance. So the way we see it is that there is, you know, sort there's a minimum wage. There is a, you know, that, that really should be met. There's a set of best practices involving equipment and sound engineers at different venues. Who shares, you know, when you play a live show, who shares the responsibility for promoting the show? You know, what do the venues do for hospitality? So really fair trade music is something we've been working on um, with a coalition of, of local musicians, artists, and you know, music bloggers and music organizers uh, to come up with what is that five-point, seven-point structure to say that if you're a music venue and you've met X number of these, you can be considered a fair trade music venue. And the value in that is threefold. I guess one, it's for the artists, to, so the artists can look at the, all the different places that are having live music, whether it's galleries, venues, bars, restaurants and say hey you know they've met you know they've seen this scale they understand it they understand what's happening and they treat musicians well so yeah that that's moving along we hope to actually as part of this task force sort of bring fair trade music into it and and talk about it with a broader group of people chris naum is the director of listen local first chris thanks so much for joining us on metro connection thanks so much for having me And now we turn to you. Are you a musician in Washington, D.C.? If so, what challenges do you face in the nation's capital? Email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamu-metro. After the break, the relationship between go-go and hip-hop. Anybody that's from D.C. that knows anything about music and knows anything about the history of the city, you do not go after a go-go band. Ever, never, never, if you are a hip-hop group. 
That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to Metro Connection. This week we are all about DC's music scene. As we bring you a show we're calling Capital Notes. But we're not doing it alone. We've teamed up with Bandwidth, WAMU's website on all things musical in the nation's capital. And joining me as co-host today is Bandwidth's editor, Ali Schweitzer. Hi there. Now, here in D.C., summertime is huge when it comes to music festivals. This weekend, Baltimore is hosting a metal festival. That is right, Maryland Death Fest. Which we'll hear about in just a minute. But next month, you also have the 10th annual D.C. Jazz Festival. And this year is going to be big. The nation's capital is seeing a real renaissance in jazz right now. One hearkening back to its roots, which many would say began with native son Duke Ellington, who launched his career here in the 1920s. Then you have pianist Billy Taylor, who grew up in the city, attending Dunbar High School in the 1930s, and eventually running the Kennedy Center's jazz program. Singer and pianist Shirley Horn chose to stay in her hometown, even after gaining international stardom in the 1950s. There's no place on earth that I'd rather be. And in the 1960s, all ears were on D.C. when pianist Ramsey Lewis recorded his hit, The In Crowd, at the Bohemian Caverns on U Street. By the 1970s, jazz historian Rusty Hassan says it was a golden age for jazz in the city, thanks in part to the staggering number of clubs. There was a a club called uh, Harold's Rogan Jar, which was owned by Harold Kaufman, who was a uh, pianist of sorts, but he was also a lawyer and a psychiatrist. That was on N Street Northwest near Connecticut Avenue. Down on Pennsylvania Avenue, there was a, a bar called the One Step Down. Off Wisconsin Avenue in Georgetown was Blues Alley. And and at that same time, right in Brooklyn, there were three black-owned clubs. uh, Moore's Love and Peace. Mr. Wise Gold Room. And then up at 18th in Rhode Island was Pigfoot, which was uh, owned by the guitarist uh, Bill Harris. But Luke Stort, music editor for the site Capital Bop, says the jazz scene of today has expanded beyond classic clubs to more alternative spots fitting for a genre based on freshness, spontaneity, and, as Stort puts it, a spirit of doing it yourself. Jazz is the first DIY movement in America in terms of people practicing you know, self-determination, booking their own shows in alternative spaces, outside of clubs, outside of traditional venues. And, adds editor-in-chief Giovanni Russinello, that can attract new, curious audiences who haven't experienced jazz before. Take, for instance, Red Door, the spot where Capital Bop launched its D.C. Jazz Loft concert series. Uh, It was in an alleyway that you had to sort of tentatively wander your way down in the middle of the night to find. It was literally a red door halfway down the alley. You'd go up a spiral staircase, you'd walk past... A hallway full of broken trombones, broken mannequins, broken typewriters. And you would push your way into a room that was 
very small and very full of music and people. And the Capitol Bop guys aren't the only ones doing it themselves. On Friday nights, you can hear live music at Westminster Church in southwest D.C. One Saturday a month from May through September, you can catch free outdoor acts at the Petworth Jazz Project. I should note, these clips you're hearing are performances by local artists. Trombonist Reginald St. Jay's Ensemble at Westminster Church and saxophonist Herb Scott with the drum and piano-playing Jolly Twins at the Petworth Jazz Project. Can you talk about some of the standout talents in the jazz community? Oh, wow. I mean, there are so many. On any given night, you can see world-class jazz in the city. And local jazz critic Sriram Gopal has seen his share. People like Brian Settles, Chris Fun. Brad Lindy is doing some really interesting things. Elijah Balbed, Elliot Seppa is a fantastic young bass player. I think he's only like 22 or 23. To say nothing of the women on the scene. Amy Bormet is now based in L.A., but she started the Washington Women in a Jazz Festival. You have a ton of talented vocalists coming up. Christy Dashiel, Lena Cycli, Rochelle Rice, Jessica Boingen settles. I mean, I could just keep talking. Or... Keep singing. This is the aforementioned vocalist Jessica Boykin Settles, wife of the aforementioned saxophonist Brian Settles, with the George Washington University Jazz Faculty Group at one of their Friday jam sessions. Which brings me to another aspect of DC's jazz renaissance academia. I recently visited Jessica and Brian at their home in Brooklyn, not far from Shirley Horn's former digs, actually. Hi. Jessica. Nice to meet you. The D.C. natives attended Duke Ellington School of the Arts and received master's degrees from Howard University. Throw in institutions like the University of the District of Columbia and the University of Maryland, and you have a ton of students and teachers enriching jazz in D.C. Alan Johnson, Donvante McCoy. Leon Rawlings. These are people, actually, that we went to school with. (laughs) Um, Allison Crockett, who did not go to Howard, but she did go to Ellington. Mm. But the beauty of D.C.'s jazz community, says Brian, is everyone is welcome, whether they learned in the classroom or on the bandstand. I see more young musicians arriving in D.C. that aren't in school and sticking around and sort of making a life out of it here. So the scene is even more vibrant even if it hasn't gained the reputation of, say, Chicago or New York. I don't think that it's nationally or internationally recognized. When you're here, you just kind of know maybe now more people will come and we'll regret (laughs) bragging. We'll regret bragging on our city. Maybe. Or maybe jazz in the nation's capital will keep growing, developing new players and venues and styles until a place long known for its partisanship and politics becomes equally renowned for its backbeats and blue notes. There's no place on earth. The 10th annual DC Jazz Festival runs June 10th through the 16th. Capital Bop's new concert series Hot 5 at Hill Center continues on June 14th. We have a clip from this month's Hot Five featuring bassist Chris Fun talking about how an LL Cool J lookalike influenced his songwriting on our website, metroconnection.org. Just 
Just to give me some bright lights Big cities for me So as we just heard, jazz is a genre with a long and storied pedigree here in D.C. Right. But the kind of music you're about to introduce us to, Allie, it's a newer kid on the block. It is. And so much that when you talk with locals about D.C. music, they rarely even think of it at first. They're much more likely to bring up Go-Go. Go-Go is a D.C. creation concocted here by the late Chuck Brown. For at least two generations, it's been the dominant form of African-American music in D.C. But hip-hop? Not so much. During the height of go-go in the 80s and 90s, hip-hop seemed to be exploding everywhere but D.C. Yet there was a small hip-hop community growing in the district during that time. And over the past 10 years, it's expanded even more. Local stars have become national figures online. D.C. rappers are getting radio play. And now it feels like the city could be headed for a hip-hop boom. Kokai, whose real name is Carl Walker, is a D.C. native and a Grammy nominee. His jazzy hip-hop group Opus Akabin was one of a few local rap acts to make it big outside the district in the 90s. He's seen firsthand how much the hip-hop scene has grown here. But the sounds he grew up with were mostly go-go acts like Junkyard Band. I used to have band practice on the porch, like me and my friends, because we was trying to get in the junkyard. We was like, this is where, you know, junkyard is from our side of town. They from Ward 8. We from Ward 8. They south side dudes. I want to be in junk or playing a go-go band or whatever. So I, that's always been in the lifeblood of who I am and the lifeblood of actually any D.C., indigenous D.C. person or, or Maryland or Virginia that's close to our borders, you knew about go-go music. Ask most rappers from here, and unless they're really young, they'll probably say they got a lot of their ideas from go-go. But they might also say go-go was a roadblock. That's what I hear from DJ Heat, a former DJ at D.C. radio station WPGC. It wasn't cool here to be a rapper. I remember when I was in high school, you know, in in mid to late 90s, and it was a group of us that were all into hip-hop, and we even tried to, you know, start a, a hip-hop club at my high school, and people just looking at me like, talk about rap, boo, like, rappers, like, who, who, cares, who cares about rap? No one cared about rap. It was all about, you know, banging on go-go beats on, on your desk and in the lunchroom, and you know, no one cared about really hip-hop, so we were, we were different. People who liked rap music formed their own small communities. One was the Freestyle Union, a group that taught aspiring MCs like Kokai some basic skills. Like, it taught the art of rhyme. Like, honestly, that's really what Freestyle Union was about. And so when you came in there, you couldn't be a haphazard, I rhyme for fun type person. You had to be serious. And so what that did is it gave us a space to be accepted as hip-hop artists in the D.C. area. While the Freestyle Union was training a generation of D.C. rappers, some artists from here were finding brief moments in the spotlight. In 1996, D.C.'s nonchalant had a hit called Five O'Clock. D.C. groups Question Mark Asylum and Section 8 Mob got a little national attention, too. Go-Go still dominated in D.C., but hip-hop artists didn't shun it. They learned from it. And in 2006, the links between D.C.'s native music and hip-hop became clearer than ever when a promising local MC put his rhymes over Go-Go. Go-Go 
The song was called Dig Dug. The rapper's name was Wale, and he was a fresh face out of Montgomery County of all places. DJ Heat says that song made local listeners open their minds to D.C. as a hip-hop town. You know, he, he was smart to do it the way he did with, you know, okay, I'm a rap over go It's a go-go town. Let me do my raps over a go-go beat, you know, make them listen that way. That was definitely the turning point where the city started paying attention and people, you know, wanted to be, get more involved in, in the hip-hop in the city and wanted to be rappers. Since Wale's big local break, several artists from D.C. have found big fan bases, young rappers like Logic, Fat Trell, and Shy Glizzy, but they didn't do it by borrowing from Go-Go. They drew on sounds from all over the country. So I asked DJ Heat a tricky question. Does she consider DC hip-hop artists innovative? Woo! No. <laughs> if you're going outside of, of, outside of go-go music, no. So, okay, DC artists haven't invented their own hip-hop music subgenre. But if people are listening, does it matter? It's not that D.C. artists haven't made great rap music yet. There's the D.C. area trio Diamond District, which put out a critically acclaimed album called March on Washington last year. Out of Virginia, talents like Goldlink and Visto are making sophisticated, contemporary-sounding rap music, and they're followed by thousands of fans on social media. So while D.C. artists haven't changed the sound of rap music, DJ Heat says this city is still a better place for hip-hop than it once was. When I first started going to hip-hop shows, local hip-hop shows in the area, it was just rappers rapping in front of other rappers. <laughs> but now to go to a show and to see fans, it, it still takes me aback every time I see it. And I know some younger people can't understand. Like, you don't understand how when I was your age in my 20s and no one cared. Now it seems a lot of people care. Here's Kokai again. What you see now is it's possible. Being an MC from D.C. is not an anomaly. When we started, it was an anomaly. You weren't accepted by everybody. Now, everybody is rapping. And if you're making dope enough records, they're going to come see you and support you. Like they will go see a go-go band back in the day. And it's those fans, not just artists, who could help make D.C. a hip-hop capital for the first time. Another genre finding a foothold in the Washington region? Extreme heavy metal. Which makes sense, actually, given D.C.'s long attachment to punk, since sonically, metal isn't that far away. Nowadays, we have metal bands of all stripes. Sludge metal. Stoner metal. Technical death metal. And probably dozens of other subgenres you've never heard of. Lauren Ober checked out a few of them and brings us this story. Two years ago, I found myself in a place I never thought I would be. Maryland Death Fest. The event is the largest festival devoted to underground metal music in the U.S. It's four days of extreme music, from doom metal to grindcore to power violence. Yeah, that's a genre. It's been held in Baltimore every Memorial Day weekend for the past 13 years. 
and I was there to watch my brother's band, Magruder Grind, melt some faces. Ryan Taylor and Evan Harding sketched out the idea for Death Fest while working together at a restaurant. They were barely out of high school, Taylor says. The blueprint was pretty much uh, written on the back of this menu in in the restaurant that we were working in. And that's really how it started, officially. Since then, Maryland Death Fest has grown pretty big. It's now four days long and features about 90 bands from all over the world. Taylor says they sell between four and 5,000 tickets a day. But to understand Death Fest and why it's such a huge draw, you first have to know about the underground metal scene. Our guide for that? Metal Chris. Well, this is Metal Chris from DCHeavyMetal.com. I run the biggest blog serving the DC Heavy Metal area. Metal Chris looks exactly the way you'd expect a dude who runs a heavy metal website to look. Tall with long, dirty blonde hair and a beard, black jeans and a black band t-shirt. And dude knows his stuff. There's all kinds here of metalheads. You have the old school guys that have been listening to, you know, Black Sabbath and Judas Priest since the 70s. And you've got the new kids that are, you know, they don't listen to anything that's more than two years old. You know, there's, there's everywhere in between. A robust metal scene in D.C. makes sense. We're kind of an uptight, serious town and people need a way to get their yayas out. And Metal Chris suggests extreme metal with its screaming vocals, blast beat drumming and thrashing around is a perfect outlet. But there isn't just one metal sound in the region. The scene is splintered into subgenre upon subgenre. There are three main ones, though. Death metal, black metal, and grindcore. Death metal, it is basically the slasher film of music. You know, if you take a Friday the 13th or Halloween or something, and, and you were to turn that into a music soundtrack, you know, like, that's where death metal comes from. One of DC's best-known death metal bands is Dying Fetus. Then there's black metal, which originated in Norway. Dispelment is a black metal band from Loudoun County, Virginia. Black metal is it's almost like ghost stories or something like that, you know? Like, it's called black metal because it is dark. And uh, they use minor chords a lot more than the other genres. Grindcore is a combo platter of punk and death metal. One of DC's oldest grindcore bands is Pig Destroyer. You gotta love those metal band names. take the extreme speed and aggression of death metal and you combine it with the social ethics and the anger of, of punk rock and that's basically the basis of grind you know this genre of songs are often two minutes one minute or even less than one minute long and it often challenges what a song can be One of the elders of D.C. underground metal is Richard Johnson. He's the lead singer of Drugs of Faith, which has been around since the early 2000s. Johnson is affectionately known as the Grindfather. 
I catch up with him before a show at Smash Records in Adams Morgan. This type of thing is a release for a lot of folks, you know. They write lyrics that might be really angry, might be really spiteful or bitter, and then they play shows and they bash it all out and they get it out. It's a good kick in the pants. In the underground metal world, that kick in the pants is true both literally and figuratively. I'm Lauren Ober. If you want to check it out for yourself, Maryland Death Fest is already underway, and you can find more information at metroconnection.org. In a minute. It's sort of like a real-time document of what was happening in this space. The hidden relics of D.C.'s music scene. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And I'm Ali Schweitzer. And today we're bringing you a collaboration between Metro Connection and WAMU's music site Bandwidth. With an all-music, all-the-time show we're calling Capital Notes. Our next story is about something you probably haven't used since the mid-1990s, cassette tapes. But here's the thing. More and more bands are starting to use this retro format to put out new music. Are cassettes a useful way for musicians to reach their fans, or are they more about nostalgia? Hans Anderson decided to find out. If you've gone to a small-ish live music show in the past few years, you've probably seen cassette tapes being hawked in the back of the room. Cassettes have been a thing for at least a few years now. Of course, they've been around much longer than this. Just ask Sean Gray. The first cassette that I actually ever, like, listened to from start to finish and wore out was probably the first Kiss tape. My father, like, raised me on, like, the Ramones and Kiss but the first cassette that I ever, like, bought with, like, my own money that, like, it wore it out was uh, Nirvana's In Utero. Which was released in 1993. In more recent history, Gray has been making his own cassettes for the two music labels he runs, Fan Death and Accidental Guest Records here in D.C. And he's pretty open about the downsides of cassettes. Some of them, and I mean this sonically, sound terrible. But Gray says that's not the point. It was never, like, a format that I was like, I gotta own this on cassette. It was like, it's cheaper. It's just a, you know, it's like a cheaper way to to listen to music. And, you know, like, obviously people that are audiophiles are going to be like, why would you want to do that? But I'm listening to, like, punk cassettes mostly. Like, I don't need, you know, surround sound. For a consumer, most new tapes cost around $5. They're also really cheap to make, and you can turn them out pretty quickly in comparison to vinyl records. This all equates to a low-risk format. Gray's label Fandeth put out a cassette from Baltimore band Room Runner. We pressed 100. And we're like, oh, maybe we'll sell 50 of these. He sold all 100. And we just kept repressing it. We sold, I think, close to like six or 700 copies of just the cassette. Just the cassette alone. Tapes have a long history with punk and hardcore music in D.C. It's really going to always be deep with punk. It's really always going to be deep with, you know, like lo-fi or experimental stuff. But not everyone is a fan of the format. Sam Rosenberg from the Glenmont, Maryland-based indie band Two Inch Astronaut is one of these cassette skeptics. It's definitely the 
the choicest medium for red pancake and the dark energy. <laughs> Nobody should check that out. This is the song Power Baby from that album, Red Pancake and the Dark Energy. It's the only album 2-inch astronaut released on cassette, and putting it on tape actually helped the band mask a lot of production flaws. They recorded it in a number of locations, can't really tell on the cassette, but now the band really has no interest in releasing anything on tape. Matt Gatwood is also a 2-inch astronaut. If you pay a lot of money like in a really nice studio with like really nice gear, and then yeah. you just end up putting it back down on a tape cassette that someone's going to put in there, car uh, i mean yeah it just doesn't really make sense the band still makes a few tapes they dub them in a dual cassette player set atop their mini fridge but they only do it because sometimes people come to them at shows looking for tapes perry fustero of the band teen liver made about a hundred tapes for his first album fustero decided against cds because just thinks tapes are cooler so the tape is a good kind of first release i think or second or third but uh it um, it's just kind of a cheap way to get your music out there. I originally set out to figure out whether or not having something cheap and easy to make fosters a greater sense of community in DC, and I didn't really find an answer. Tapes are now just threaded into the many ways you get music. Sean Gray again. Just listen to whatever is easiest for you you know i think the least punk thing you can say to people is like no you have to experience it this way like that's the least punk thing that you can say to people gray bets that most people who buy cassettes listen to the digital download that comes with it instead of the tape but owning that physical piece of the music well that's important too even if it doesn't sound perfect i'm hans anderson Washington has plenty of archives and museums where you can view music artifacts. But sometimes the most interesting items are hidden from public view. Think mementos of long-gone performances or relics from a club's early days. Lauren Landau peeked behind closed doors at some popular D.C. clubs and brings us this look at what she found. Visitors to the Howard Theater are greeted by a small tribute to one of D.C.'s most beloved musicians, Chuck Brown. His black cowboy boots and hat are enclosed in a glass case that also holds a portrait of the godfather of Go-Go. The artist behind this work is DeMont Pinder. He's got another Chuck Brown portrait here, too, but you need special access to see that one and the numerous other portraits it lives with. Mr. Chuck Brown, he was the first pitch I did like two years ago. You know, I did that wall, and then I said, you know what? I just bled over to the corner. I did that wall, and I just started going crazy. Started putting pictures up in the hallways and just, you know, tattooing the building. So it turned from one to over 100. More than 100 portraits, almost all of musicians. They're part of a huge mural in a backstage stairwell and basement. And with just a few exceptions, most of the people featured on Pinder's mural have performed at or visited the theater. One time he heard Nas would be coming to a show, so he made sure to get a portrait of the rapper on the walls. The painting of Nas is also one of the few that isn't signed by its subject. Oh, man. Living-wise, of course, Marvin Gaye can't sign his, but living-wise, it might be only like five signatures I haven't received. I miss Keith Sweat. Juicy J didn't sign. 
I don't think Kara's one song, but he actually did a video drop for me that day. So I guess somebody, he just didn't have a marker. Sometimes Pinder paints before the concert, sometimes after. It's not uncommon for him to slap a piece together while the show is in progress. Often working with limited time, Pinder says it takes him anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour to create a single portrait. They're not perfect, but they have character. Like, I look at some pieces, I'm like, oh, I could have did way better than that. But I don't think it really um, matters far as skill-wise, I think it's the moment that you see inside of the images and the time that I was able to capture. Just over a mile away, another secret staircase boasts hundreds of signatures and a few drawings. Well, it's a secret to most everyone, save for the staff, speakers, and performers who see and sign Sixth and I Historic Synagogue's Wall of Fame. Art Garfunkel has a really cool signature down there, and Leanne Rhymes as well. That's Matthew Weiss. He's the live entertainment manager here and is often tasked with corralling musicians into this staircase to sign the constantly growing collection of autographs. We have uh, Wynton Marsalis behind me and Donald Fagan, Asaf Abidan. Uh, Dina Menzel. Sixth and I started this behind-the-scenes project nine years ago at the suggestion of Rory Zuckerman, who is herself an entertainer and married to the chairman of the board. But director Esther Four says there was some miscommunication between administrators and staff. The first signature I can well remember because we have a meticulous crew that takes care of the building. And they came in and they saw writing on the wall and they cleaned it. And we had to explain that, no, these are precious signatures that are up there for a reason. Luckily, permanent marker doesn't wash off easily. Though smudged, the signature is still there today. But sometimes the homage to a venue's history is less obvious. Those knuckles belong to Audrey Schaefer, director of communications for the 930 Club. We're hanging out in the building's basement, admiring a rather large, heavy, and beaten-up piece of wood. This bar has had a couple of lives before this location where we are right now. It originally was part of a moose lodge. Then the people who were operating the original 930 Club were able to get it. Schaefer says when the club relocated to a bigger building in the 1990s, the bar moved with it. It's seen a lot of love over the years and is marked with scrapes and light spots where the varnish rubbed off. But aside from its physical appearance, there's no evidence of its role in the venue's history. People who are coming to the 930 Club at this location that never went to the old location would have no idea. It's people who did go to the old location, and if they take the time to really look at it, they'll see, oh my gosh, that's my old friend. Folks who frequented the original space might recognize another familiar sight hanging over the kitchen window on the main floor. It's a yellow and red sign that says, food, food. For longtime patrons, it's a discreet inside joke. It's in the exact same color and type that was on a sign next to the old 930 Club. It was a little Chinese takeout on F Street, which was a very scary neighborhood. If you never went to that old club, you wouldn't get it. But for those who do get it, these hidden and visible secrets make it clear. Music fans sure do dig a little nostalgia. I'm Lauren Landau. Do you have a favorite piece of history from a local music venue? Share your story with us. Our Twitter handles are at WAMU Metro and at Bandwidth DC.
Our last stop on today's tour of DC's music scene can be kind of sweaty. We're talking about dance music. And sure, DC's dance music scene is modest compared with cities like London, New York, or Berlin. But DC has always supported its share of DJs and clubs and roving parties. Lately, big venues like the U Street Music Hall have boosted DC's reputation as a dance music destination. You'll also find a small but thriving community of record labels releasing riskier, more experimental dance music. Joe Warminski takes us inside one of them, 1432R. The pleasures of dance music are a big part of Joyce Lim's life, but that wasn't always the case. I'm Korean, and part of the Korean culture is that they're very militant about music training. Um, it's not really about having fun or, you know, experimentation or anything like that. She spent a lot of time at the piano. And so I sort of hated it. I sort of hated learning the piano when I was younger. You know, I, I gave my mom hell for practicing and things like that because um, I never really got to play what I wanted. Now that Joyce is all grown up, that training is paid off. She makes a living teaching piano, and she loves it. But her own tastes have gravitated toward this. The beat. The electronic kind. Joyce is co-founder of 1432R, an independent DC record label that focuses on dance music. It's only a year old, but it's got admirers around the globe. Taste-making publications like The Fader and Pitchfork have taken notice. Joyce wasn't alone in the venture. Starting on an instrument when you're five years old, your brain is naturally going to get used to having music in it often. That's Sammy Yenigan, another co-founder of 1432R. He introduced Joyce to dance music. And like her, he's also a trained musician. He played the flute as a kid. But college changed everything. His freshman roommate had two turntables, and the seductions of dance music led Sammy to become a DJ, writer, and party organizer. He now works for NPR, and he writes about electronic music for the Washington Post. There is nothing like a dance floor that is going crazy. The desire to connect people with music drove the creation of 1432R, which is named after the Northwest D.C. address of a building where Joyce and Sammy once lived. There were shows and parties in a basement space there. Dawit Eklund, one of Sammy's college friends, was part of the scene. He eventually became another co-founder of 1432R. Dawit was just a studio rat. I mean, the dude just would lock himself in his room for, I mean, days on end, continual sessions. And he would come out and, you know, make these incredible songs. The scene on R Street eventually dissolved, but the connections remained strong. Dawit continued to make dance music. Joyce and Sammy dabbled too. By the spring of 2014, 1432R had taken shape. But its first release wasn't by Dawit or Joyce or Sammy. It was by one of Dawit's friends, Michael Seifu, an Ethiopian who had spent a few years in the United States. Dawit, whose mother is Ethiopian and father is American, knew Michael from their high school days in Addis Ababa. The entire 1432R crew embraced Michael Seifu's tunes. It was decided his Yurata Lidge EP, which had one foot in the West and the other in Ethiopia, would be the label's first release. He was really sort of paving a totally new path, and that's definitely sort of a Western influence on him since he came and studied here and, stu and did music production in college and things like that. So I think this is a pretty fresh way of, you know, doing all of this stuff. 
The relationship with Michael Seifu opened the door to 1432R's other big release, Ken Su, by the Ethiopian producer Indega Namulu, who goes by the moniker Ethiopian Records, and also melds modern digital sounds with influences from his homeland. The ties to Ethiopia are likely to remain strong. Dawit himself has moved back to Addis Ababa. Here in D.C., Sammy and Joyce are paying more attention to the music made by the local Ethiopian community. And so we've been sort of exploring Ethiopian jazz now. I mean, it's definitely opened up my world to this whole new part of the music spectrum that I hadn't previously paid attention to. Sammy and Joyce say they do plan to release records by non-Ethiopian artists. And to celebrate the dance music scene in D.C., they've been posting mixes by local DJs online under the title Extended Family. The goal, in the end, is to use the proceeds from current releases to fund more music. It's about, you know, casting, a, you know, I guess a wide net and whoever is, is listening to the same frequencies we are, whoever's on the same wavelength, if it moves them, then, then you know, we've done our jobs, I think. I'm a very firm believer, and this may sound a little bit hocus-pocusy, but I'm fully convinced that we were just vessels for the music. Um, and that's how it became, that the work itself was so important that somebody had to put it out. I'm Joe Warminski. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Tara Boyle, Joe Warminski, Hans Anderson, Lauren Landau, and Lauren Ober, along with my very special co-host, bandwidth editor Ali Schweitzer. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org, or check us out on iTunes. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.